We are reading from the early chapters of the story in Genesis of Abraham and Sarah. And these first chapters tell of the call of Abraham. And you will remember that as part of that call, at one point God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. Our text today from the 15th chapter, part of the call of Abraham, comes prior to God bestowing a new name upon Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 15, beginning at chapter 1, at verse 1, the first six verses. Hear the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. The Lord brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then the Lord said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. And the Lord, and Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. God reckoned it to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, quotes this verse from Genesis. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. Paul also quotes the same verse in Romans. We say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? The Apostle Paul drops in both citations in his argument regarding the fundamental affirmation of salvation by grace through faith. Grace alone, faith alone. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also, Paul writes. It will be reckoned to us who believe in the one who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification, Romans, the fourth chapter. Reckoned to Abraham reckoned to us. 
The language from Genesis is also quoted in the book of James. In James' argument about faith without works is dead. Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his own son Isaac on the altar? You see, the faith was active along with his works, and faith was, was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. The Apostle Paul, the book of James, and the reckoning of God. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. When it comes to the canon of scripture, one has to conclude that this is all pretty important. Abraham the Lord and the reckoning of righteousness. The challenge for those of us who believe, the challenge, the perplexity that arises when it comes to divine reckoning is it's not all that clear what it means. The meaning of reckoned it to him as righteousness. I reckon it's just not all that obvious. Sorry. The etymology of the word reckon, in Hebrew and in Greek and in English for that matter, has connotations of money, accounting, credit. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited to him or counted it to him as righteousness. That's how some other versions translate it. Such a transactional implication of the term does not provide any sudden insight or shine a clear light on what it all means in terms of the Lord and Abraham and the future God has in store for Abraham and Sarah, God's future for God's people. The call of Abraham and the promise of God begins a few chapters earlier in Genesis. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In this morning's text, the Lord comes back to Abram to reiterate the promise in response to Abram's reasonable concern that he and Sarah have no children and are very old. Because they had no children, Abram had taken steps to have Eliezer, a servant in the house, become his heir. And the Lord took exception to plan B. That's when the Lord took Abram outside to look at the stars. Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. So shall your descendants be. Who among us has not found themselves taken by the beauty of a clear night sky, especially far from the ambient light of a populated place? A visit to the beach at night. A rocking chair on a porch in the mountains. The youth group above the tree line a few weeks ago. You have to figure, however, this was not Abram's first time to look up at a desert night sky, or even his first time to try to count the stars in the sky. And here's where many preachers and biblical commentaries point to Abram having a Psalm 8 kind of experience. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? A moment of awe 
and wonder and praise and adoration out under the vast canopy of the desert night sky certainly seems relatable. Something with which you and I can identify in the life of faith. But a turn on a dime, no faith to all faith, no belief to full belief, not just in the twinkling of an eye, but in the twinkle of a star, that all seems more distant. That with such a brief, with such a, in such a brief moment that Abraham and this burning bush experience like exchange with God and a great photo op of the night sky that Abraham went from zero to 100 when it came to the promise of God just like that. Which brings us back to when the Lord reckons. When writing about this seminal passage in the Abraham and Sarah narrative, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann concludes that at the end of the day, quote, the new reality of faith for Abraham must be accounted as a miracle from God. The faith of Abraham should not be understood in romantic fashion as an achievement or as a moral decision, unquote. In other words, Abraham's belief is nothing other than a gift of God. Therefore, any righteousness attributed to, credited to, accounted to Abraham is likewise a gift of God. God doesn't simply acknowledge the righteousness of Abraham in believing. God doesn't simply give Abraham a credit slip of righteousness because of his sudden faith. God bestows righteousness upon Abraham just as God filled Abram with faith. And in the unfolding story of Abraham and Sarah, righteousness is not simply piety or even simply belief, according to Brueggemann. Righteousness, in the professor's word, means to in the professor's word means to trust God's future and to live assured that God, that the future of that future, to rest assured of that future even in the deathly present. Faith responds to an already given grace. This faith is not simply an embrace of the goodness which meets us in the world, Brueggemann writes, but a reception of the goodness of God promised in spite of the way the world is. The faith of Abraham is not in anything he sees in the world, but in a word which will overcome the barrenness of the world. No, Abram's faith did not come in a shining star. It came from and with the promise of God. Both belief and righteousness. Belief and trusting in God's future for us, God's future for us and for the world, both are gifts of God, miraculous gifts when the Lord bestows that twofold, two-part, double-stacked gift, well, that's the Lord's reckoning. Far beyond the dictionary meaning of the word or any connotation that the Lord rewarded some kind of decision of faith in Abraham with righteousness, reckoning means the unilateral movement of God to instill both belief and the trust in God's future in the heart and the soul and the mind of God's children. The day of reckoning then is less about coming before God in final judgment and more about an experience of the renewed conviction that Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ our best days are always yet to come. 
the Lord's reckoning is far less than wrath and vengeance, and much more the assurance that God's future will indeed overcome the world's death, barrenness, fear, and destruction that seems so relentless. Reckoning, when it comes to God, is way less than keeping score, living a life of credits and debits, balancing sin with piety, and a lot more about empowering, inspiring, encouraging, the encouraging grace of God that bestows and pairs relief and belief and righteousness, faith and trust in the children of God who refuse to ever stop yearning for, praying for, and working toward the world God intends. Yes, at the end of the day, looking at the beauty of a vast night sky in wonder and awe, but also looking at the world in all of its fullness with belief and trust that you and I and all the children of God and the real world we live in, we all still belong body and soul in life and in death to the God we know in and through Jesus Christ. You, me, and the future God has in store for us. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you shall proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Until, until God's future and the forward leaning, sending out of the celebration of the Lord's Supper until, until, until. The Reverend David McAlpin, a friend and colleague of Nassau Church and so many here for many, many years, died on Friday surrounded by his four children in his apartment at Stonebridge. The time will come to celebrate David's life, time of service to the church, his generosity, and his legacy, especially right here in our community. As I sat with David's children in the hours before God brought him home, one of his daughters asked me to share a few of my own thoughts and memories of David, and I shared some. And the last one I mentioned is how David's lifelong and unwavering commitment to social justice and racial reconciliation inspired me. No one spent more years or had a deeper commitment to or believed in the importance of the relationship of the Witherspoon Presbyterian Church, historically African-American, and Nassau Presbyterian Church, First Presbyterian Church, when David would have first started this work that the relationship between the two congregations is crucial. I told the family that I found encouragement and inspiration in his steadfast commitment to racial reconciliation, especially when I tried to ponder his most often subtle behind-the-scenes work that he did beginning in the 50s, and then the 60s, and then the 70s, and then the 80s, and then the 90s, and the two decades of this century. Then his children told me something I didn't know. David attended the 1963 March on Washington with the pastor of the Witherspoon Street Church. And he listened to Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech in person. One of his daughters once asked him to describe what it was like, and he told her that Dr. King began in a very understated, 
subdued way and that the crowd matched that spirit and tone in the beginning and it felt almost somber, weighty. But as Dr. King got into the sermon and picked up the pace and the energy with all the oratorical flourish that most of us have only heard in recordings, David said it was like the entire crowd was lifted to another level in life and in spirit, another place, another world. And it was right then and there he told his daughter that I knew my life would forever be committed to racial justice. It was like on that day in August of 1963, almost 60 years ago, the Lord reckoned David McAlpin with faith and a trust that enabled, inspired him to witness and to work for the next 60 years toward the future God intends for the world and for all God's children. When the Lord reckons. Now I think I reckon I have a better understanding of what that means. Thanks be to God.